You are listening to the Grove Church Podcast, where you will find a message that is biblically based, relatable, and easy to understand. For more content or to learn more about the Grove Church, go to grovech.org. Good morning. Welcome to the 9 a.m. service. Glad you're here. Some people don't know what I'm talking about. Welcome to the 9 a.m. service. We're glad you're here. Anyway, um, hey, I want to uh, mention something that we kind of went over in detail last week. If you missed um, last week's service, I really encourage you to listen to the podcast because we basically walk through in detail the future, where we're going, how we want to get there with some of the building expansion stuff, um, the Now Initiative, which is our giving campaign. Um, and just again, to be blunt about it, um, one of the ways that we're going to fund what we're doing is asking everybody, all of us to be a part of giving. And so there's some brochures in the lobby along with some architectural sketches. Those aren't finals, but that's kind of the general idea of what things would look like. Also inside the brochure is a pledge card, and we've said this, next Sunday is Pledge Sunday, so we're asking everybody to turn their pledges in um, by March 20th, uh, and again, that's a million dollars over 24 months, just saying, hey, what could we all do uh, above and beyond what we normally do to make this happen? So there's the details, listen to the podcast, and of course, um, if you have questions or whatever, feel free to email me or email us, and we'd love to answer any questions that you have. Today is actually the last part in our series, Eyes Wide Open. Today's part nine. It's been a kind of a longer series than we typically do. But today I want to talk about what it means to be generous, what it means to have our eyes wide open towards, I'll call them outsiders, just for the sake of today's message. So we're going to be in, in the gospel of Luke chapter seven. Uh, so if you got a Bible with you, you can turn there. I'm a big fan of you bringing your Bibles to church. If you got a smartphone, that's great too. You can look it up on a Bible app, uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. Anybody ever seen the show, What Would You Do? Just raise your hand. Some of us, I love the show because it's, it's this kind of thing where they set up a scenario and put hidden cameras, you know, all around. And it, the last one I saw that I remember was a few weeks back and it was um, a guy they set up on a park bench and he was staged to like go through his backpack and like snack on stuff, but throw the trash out on the, the, the ground and people are walking by all over in front of him. And the question is, what would you do in the show? The idea is they want to catch on camera. What are people's reactions? Do people stop and like pick up the garbage? Do people like just keep walking like i don't know he's doing whatever do people stop and confront him is anybody argumentative and they they do it with guys they they'll actually switch from if a guy's throwing trash how do people respond if you make it a girl is it any different if you have her doing that it's pretty fascinating to watch so the show is called what would you do i want to take you on a little bit of a journey um into this for a moment i want to picture i want you to picture yourself at the mall and i don't care if you hate the mall or not you and i are at the mall so um, you're at the mall, you're shopping in a store, and somebody thinks that you work there. There's some small talk. You're not sure what they're thinking right away. They're being real friendly. And then comes the question, hey, could you help me find a small in this? There, there, there you go. What would you do? Because immediately you think, oh, they think I work here. And there's a couple of options. Most people in the room would simply go, you know what? I don't work here. I'm sorry, but you know that person over there, a few of us in the room would actually go, you know what? Let me see what I can do. And we're not crazy, all right? So bear with me here. Um, but I want you to take it a step further. Let's say that the manager of the store, for whatever reason, thinks that you're an employee. And, and they're, they're coming around you and they're going, hey, make sure you're friendly. And you're like, thank you. That's weird. Um, <laughs> Hey, we don't wear shirts like that here. You're like, whatever, man. Um, hey, could you take these to that shelf? Hey, could you help that guy who just walked in? Hey, you need to be prompt. Make sure that you're not late. Um, did you clock in? What time is your break? All of a sudden, you'd be like, look, I don't work here. And what if they said, I know. 
You'd be like, are, are you crazy? Like, what's wrong with you? But, but, but here's the catch. You're thinking, you can't treat me like an employee if I don't work here. Is it possible for you and I, if you're a follower of Christ, is it possible that you and I are quick to judge those who don't know Christ as if they do? That you and I expect certain standards, expect certain behavior. And, and the problem is this, is it really fair? How can we help others see God's love through us if, if all, we, all they see is people being critical or glaring in disapproval or, or being judgmental or whatever? Isn't that like treating an employee like a, like a, or like a shopper like an employee? We can't hold people to a standard that they don't understand. If we do, we do come across as judgmental. And, and there's nothing worse than a know-it-all who's also judgmental. The, the church has suffered for decades, and I'm sure far longer than that, because it's become a club where insiders know the secret language and culture and behavior, and outsiders are only welcome once they measure up. It's, it's impossible. And what happens for you and me is if you've been a part of the church for any length of time, it's so easy for us to forget what it's like to be outsiders. And so what do we do with this whole picture? How do you and I live generously towards those that aren't part of church world, those that don't profess that Christ died for their sins or whatever? How do we treat people who aren't familiar with Christ? How do we treat people who aren't familiar with the church? How do we live generously towards those who misunderstand it? How do we live generously towards people who are opposed to Christ? The answer is found in the very person at the center of the story. I want you to take a look at Luke chapter 7. I'm going to start here in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some of the elders of the Jews to ask him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But Say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes. I tell this one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him he said. I tell you I have not found such great faith even in Israel. When the men who had been sent returned to the house. They found the servant well. Fast forward from Luke 7. Uh, now to ch- uh, chapter 7, verse 36. So Luke seven, thirty-six. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. 
One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman hasn't stopped kissing my feet from the time I entered. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this that forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And God, we pray today that your spirit would work in all of us. That God, there's something about our ability to be part of a church, God, that can cause us to become so critical, become so judgmental. God, we begin to to have an attitude, God, about who we are and who others aren't. And Father, I pray in this room, you you would develop in each of our lives, God, a humility, God, an openness, not only to the need for grace in our own lives, but to dispense grace from our lives towards others. So help us, God, have a greater understanding of what it means to be generous towards those who are not part of church. In Jesus' name, amen. So you have two pictures here in Luke chapter 7. And in these two pictures, it's, it's outsiders. The first is a centurion. He's not necessarily a Roman citizen. He could have been hired by, by Rome. But the Roman Empire, keep in mind, was, was um, kind of uh, in charge of the nation of Israel. Israel is subject to the Roman Empire during this time. There was a lot of animosity between the nation of Israel, between the Jews and Rome. They didn't appreciate Rome because they were subject to them. So here's a Roman centurion who somehow has some sort of favor with the Jews, if you look at the story, and it says that, that they come to Jesus because the centurion's servant needs to be healed. And, and here's how they describe him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. The thing is, it says, so Jesus went with them. Jesus doesn't go because this guy has been so generous towards the temple. He goes because it's an opportunity to show that the barrier or the wall between Israel and others has been torn down. Fast forward to this woman who walks into the house of a Pharisee and goes up to Jesus. And we look at this and it's a pretty weird story. The woman begins weeping and and, and the tears are falling on Jesus' feet. She's kissing his feet and, and wiping her hair on his feet. It's a really odd story in a sense and and rightly so the thing is though it's meant to make a point because when the pharisee invited jesus as a guest the pharisee should have had somebody working in the house that would have offered to wash jesus feet as he entered it would have been customary but he didn't do that it was really meant as a slap in the face it was really meant as i know you're here but i'm not going to act i'm not going to treat you like i should treat you and yet this woman comes in And the specific description that she's given is the woman who lived a sinful life. What a great description. Wouldn't you love that? If somehow you were written about and all it said about you is, oh, that person who lived a sinful life. And yet that's a description of the woman. Both of these individuals are what we would consider outsiders. They weren't part of the nation of, of Israel. They were, they were sinners. They were you know, centurions. They were, they were people on the other side of the tracks. And yet we see over and over and over in the example of Jesus an offer of grace toward outsiders. 
In fact, right before the story of the woman, Jesus is, doing, is offering a description, uh, telling a story. He says, for John the Baptist, this is Luke seven thirty three. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, Jesus was willing to tear down the walls between the nation of Israel that was chosen by God. They misunderstood what it meant to be chosen by God. Not chosen as in, we're better and you're not, and we're a country club and you stay out. Chosen by God to reveal the plan of redemption to the entire world. So they misunderstand it and basically create a country club out of their nation. So here's Jesus over and over and over offering grace toward outsiders. Philip Yancey, in the book, The Jesus I Never Knew, great book, by the way. If you're looking for one to read, write that down. You can probably download it on Kindle or or, or buy the book. Philip Yancey says this, talking about Jesus. He became known as a friend of tax collectors, a group clearly identified with the foreign exploiters, not the exploited. Though he denounced the religious system of his day... He treated a leader like Nicodemus with respect. And though he spoke against the dangers of money and violence, he showed love and compassion toward a rich young ruler and a Roman centurion. Listen to this. In short, Jesus honored the dignity of people, whether he agreed with them or not. He would not found his kingdom on the basis of race or class or such divisions. Anyone, even a half-breed with five husbands or a thief dying on a cross, was welcome to join his kingdom. The person was more important than any, any category or label. I, can, I feel convicted by this quality of Jesus every time I get involved in a cause I strongly believe in. How easy it is to join, the, join in the politics of polarization, to find myself shouting across the picket lines at the enemy on the other side. How hard it is to remember that the kingdom of God calls me to love the woman who has just emerged from the abortion clinic, and yes, even her doctor, the promiscuous person that's dying of AIDS, the wealthy landowner who is exploiting God's creation. Listen to this. If I cannot show love to such people, then I must question whether I have truly understood Jesus' gospel. A political movement by nature draws lines, makes distinctions, pronounces judgment. In contrast, Jesus' love cuts across lines, transcends distinctions, and dispenses grace, regardless of the merits of a given issue. Whether a pro-life lobby on the right or a peace and justice lobby out of the left, political movements risk oling onto themselves the mantle of power that smothers love. From Jesus, I learned that whatever activism I get involved in, it must not drive out love and humility. Otherwise, I betray the kingdom of heaven. Here's the request of our king. I'm going to rewind to to Luke chapter 6 for a moment. Here's the request of, of, of Jesus. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who persecute you, pray for those who mistreat you. 
If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, don't stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. You want to talk about a tall order for a follower of Christ? Jesus says, look, for you and me, it's easy to love people that love us. It's easy to be kind to those that are kind to us. It's much more difficult. And the order is there by Jesus himself that you and I are called to love outsiders. To extend grace towards outsiders. To help them see Jesus not through legislation and and our political agendas. But through the message and the work of the gospel in the human heart. The compassion that rises up that trumps people's ability to see politics and, 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 and the, the, what is it called? The religious right or, 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 or the, the, the evangelical vote. You're like, oh, he's getting political today. Awesome. One of the greatest problems I have, and I appreciate living in America, and I love that you and I get to vote and we have our rights and there is freedom of speech, but the problem is, too often, our patriotism trumps our ability for others to see Jesus. And that's actually what Philip Yancey's talking about in the Jesus I never knew. You, you, you think that there weren't simple things happening politically in Jesus' day? See Jesus wearing a button says, vote for you know Quirinius. Jesus says this, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, slap them back. If somebody slaps you on the cheek, put them in a headlock, throw them on the ground, and get them in a chokehold till they tap for submission. Can I hear an amen? The girl's too scared to say amen. Like, I don't think the Bible talks about tapping out of submission. There's something in all of it. Let me ask you this. Who are your enemies? Who are people that you dislike? Which family member is on your blacklist? Which coworker? What boss? What neighbor do you live next to that you go, I can't stand that guy or gal or their pets or whatever it is. There's a scripture that you and I would do well to remember. They will know that we are Christians by 
passing only Christ-centered legislation in our government. By making sure that God's man for the job gets into office. They will know that we are Christians. By making sure that we can rant about all the things wrong with our world on Facebook. Because that always helps. They will know that we are Christians by our love for each other. And by the way, you get it out of context if you think that only means our love for people that are followers of Jesus. If you follow Jesus, I love you. You're great. If you don't, I don't know what to say. It's our love for mankind. That we would be marked by a love that people go, what in the world is it about you? That's why Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn your cheek so that they don't have to see the damage that they've done and you still offer relationship to them. There's people in the room going, oh boy. It means I got to change how I'm treating others. I wrote them off a long time ago. It's a picture of rejection. If somebody rejects you, don't throw up a wall and go, well, here's what it is. Continue to offer yourself humbly even though you may get rejected again and again and again. It's Paul. Paul, one of my favorite stories, Acts 14, I think. He's in a certain city and he's sharing the gospel. and, And they get so mad that they stone him. And to a point where a rock hits him and he's knocked out and they drag him out of the city. Does anybody remember what happens after that? Paul doesn't go, shake the dust off, I'm out, peace. No, he goes right back into the city and basically says, Jesus still loves you guys. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. I'm about to say something very radical. You and I don't own anything. Biblically speaking, you and I are simply managers of whatever God has entrusted to us. That's it. We're managing what God has entrusted to us as long as we're alive. At the point that we're gone, somebody else inherits what we had or whatever. But, but we're just stewards. And so when Jesus talks about you know, somebody stealing from you, Jesus says, let them have it. He takes this, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, nice coat, give me it. All right, you want my shirt too? He's like, what? Why, why would we say, what? Do you know what I think it is? I think it would make the person go, what? Not only would you maybe get to keep your coat, you're crazy. I think it makes people go, what? Who are you? It's really not mine. All I have is God's. And if you want to wear his coat, by all means, enjoy it. It's radical. In a world where we have our, our, my property is my property. But Jesus says, live in a way that, that you're not so possessive. I'll take you to court. You're going to learn. I'll get mine. Show you. And he says, give in a way that you're not keeping an account of what you deserve back. Somebody needs from you, give it. 
And don't say, hey, you know, you mentioned you're going through some tough times and, you know, we, my wife and I want to help you out. And here's, here's a couple hundred bucks. And I really do hope that helps and that, that bill gets paid. But can I get your address? Because I'm going to have to send you an invoice. Jesus says, don't do that. It's radical because it's meant to help people see the kingdom of God in a way that they're not going to see it when you and I live possessively. When you and I live like, oh, you slap me on the face, we're done here, finished, see ya, in court. No, no, live in such a way that it's so radical, people go, what is it about you? What is this? Why do you respond that way? How can you still have joy in the midst of calamity? How can you still hold on to your faith in the midst of trial? How can you still be a faithful follower of Jesus even though your life can fall apart? Because my circumstances don't dictate my life. I'm not going to let that shipwreck my faith. And you think that I stand up here, he's never had anything happen to him. He's never been in those difficult spots where life sucks really bad. And I would tell you, and I'm not going to get into it, but you're wrong. I've experienced those moments that are as dark as you might imagine. Maybe not as dark as you if we want to compare apples to apples, but dark. And I remember in one of the darkest times of my life a few years ago, literally going through something so difficult and so heartbreaking that, that you feel like I, I have no appetite, I have no whatever. I remember thinking this, Jesus, I don't get why. But for some reason, I just want to worship you right now. And that sounds like I'm super spiritual, and I'm not. But I say that to say, look, we face tough, tough stuff. What if we responded in faith instead? Who would be impacted when you and I respond in faith rather than fear? What does Jesus say? He goes on. He says, hey, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. If God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, why wouldn't we be? People that aren't walking in a way that we think, well, this is how Jesus says, and they're not doing it, so whatever. It's a picture right there. He's kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Jesus says this, I tell you who hear me, love. Everybody say love. Do good. Yeah, repeat after me. Do good. Bless. Pray. Say it again. Love. Do good. Bless. Pray. There's your answer. How do I treat people that are on the outside that don't understand my Christian faith, what I'm about? Love. Do good. Bless and pray. Four-point sermon in like 30 seconds. You're welcome. You're like, I could have gone home a long time ago. Got that extra hour of sleep. Jesus says, then your reward will be great. Look, it's God who rewards us. We think we're losing by being overly generous. We think somehow we're missing out because we, we do something with our resources rather than, than, than do what we want to do. We think somehow the slap on the cheek and continue to extend a relationship hurts. And what do we, I got to stand up for myself and all this stuff. God is the one who rewards us. God is the one who provides for us. And let's never forget that. That God can take care of balancing the scales. Dealing with the individual who needs to be dealt with far better than we can. Love, do good, bless, 
and pray. A friend and mentor of mine, Troy Jones, shared a story recently from a famous author and speaker about the essence of Christian compassion. And I want to uh, read it, and then we're going to wrap this up. A few years ago, he flew to Hawaii to speak at a conference. The way he tells it, he checks into his hotel and tries to get some sleep. Unfortunately, his internal clock wakes him at 3 a.m. The night is dark, the streets are silent, the world is asleep, but he's wide awake and his stomach is growling. He gets up and prowls the streets looking for a place to get some bacon and eggs for an early breakfast. Everything is closed except for a grungy dive in an alley. He goes in and sits down at the counter. The fat guy behind the counter comes over and asks, what do you want? Well, he's not so hungry anymore, so eyeing some donuts under a plastic cover, he says, I'll have a donut and a black coffee. As he sits there munching on his donut, sipping his coffee at 3 a.m., in walk eight or nine provocative, loud prostitutes just finished with their night's work. They plop down at the counter and find this man, he's uncontrolled, I'm sorry, he's uncomfortably surrounded by this group smoking, swearing hookers. He gulps his coffee, planning to make a quick getaway. Then the woman next to him says to her friend, you know what, tomorrow's my birthday, I'm going to be 39 to which her, fl- her friend replies, so what do you want from me? A birthday party? You want me to get a cake and sing happy birthday? The first woman says, come on, why do you have to be so mean? Why do you have to put me down? I'm just saying it's my birthday. I don't want anything. Why should I have a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? Well, when he heard that, he made a decision. He sat down and waited until the women left. Then he asked the guy at the counter, do they come in here every night? Yeah. The one right next to me, he asked, she comes in every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. Yeah, she's here every night. She's been coming here for years. Why do you want to know? Because she just said tomorrow's her birthday. What do you think? Do you think we could maybe throw her a little birthday party for her right here in the diner? A cute kind of smile crept over the man's chubby cheeks. That's great, he says. Yeah, that's great. I like it. He turns to the kitchen and shouts to his wife, hey, come out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow is Agnes's birthday, and he wants to throw a party for her right here. His wife comes out. That's terrific, she says. You know, Agnes is really nice. She's always trying to help other people, but nobody does anything nice for her. So they make their plans. He says he'll be back at 2.30 the next morning with some decorations. And the man, whose name turns out to be Harry, says he'll make a cake. At 2.30 the next morning, they're back. He has crepe paper and other decorations and a sign made of big pieces of cardboard that says, Happy birthday, Agnes. They decorate the place from one end to the other and get it looking great. Harry had gotten the word out on the streets about the party. And by 3.15, it seems that every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. There were hookers wall to wall. At 3.30 on the dot, the door swings open and in walks Agnes and her friend. They have everybody ready. They all shout and scream, happy birthday, Agnes. Agnes is absolutely flabbergasted. She's stunned. Her mouth falls open. Her knees start to buckle and she almost falls over. And when the birthday cake with all the candles is carried out, that's when she totally loses it. Now she's sobbing and crying. Harry, who's not used to seeing a prostitute cry, gruffly mumbles, blow out the candles, Agnes, cut the cake. So she pulls herself together and blows them out. Everyone cheers and yells, cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake. But Agnes looks down at the cake and without taking her eyes off it, slowly and softly says, look, Harry, is it all right with you if, I mean, if I don't, I mean... What I want to ask is, is it okay to keep the cake a little while? Is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry doesn't know what to say, so he shrugs and says, sure. If that's what you want to do, keep the cake. Take it home if you want. Oh, could I? She asks. Looking around, she says, if I live just down the street a couple of doors, 
I want to take the cake home. Is that okay? I'll be right back. She gets off her stool, picks up the cake, holds it high in front of her like it was the Holy Grail. Everybody watches in stunned silence when the door closes behind her. Nobody seems to know what to do. They look at each other. They look at the host. So he gets up on a chair and says, what do you say we pray together? And there they are, a hole in the wall, greasy spoon, half the prostitutes in Honolulu at 3.30 a.m. listening to him as he prays for Agnes, for her life, for her health, for her salvation. The author recalls, I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When he finishes, Harry leans over and a trace of hosti- with a trace of hostility in his voice, he says, hey, you never know- told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do, be- do you belong to anyways? In one of those moments when just the right words came, the man answers him quietly. I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> Harry thinks for a moment and in a mocking way says, no, you don't. There ain't no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. Yep, I'd join a church like that. I share that because it begs the question, how can you and I love like Jesus? How can you and I be generous towards people that don't understand what it means to live by the scriptures? How how can we live in a way that helps people see God's love and compassion and plan for them in a world that throws them all kinds of other messages? How can we pull it off? We say all the time, and I never want you to forget it. What does this mean for you in your neighborhood or apartment complex? What does this mean for you in the places that you work? What does this mean for you in the family that God put you in? What does this mean for you and the friendships that you have? But it's my hope that you and I can realize this is never, and I've said it so many times recently, this is not a country club. It's a place where you and I are called to to, to love people, that our hearts will be softened here so that we can love out there, that we can be encouraged here so that we can change the world out, out there. What does it look like for you? Father, I pray you would help us. Understand, what it's a, it's a fun story, and I love the picture, because it's so easy that, that we could be sitting in a coffee shop at 3 a.m. in Honolulu, and, and, and have that, those people walk in, and immediately we judge them. Oh, boy. They probably this. They probably that. They don't deserve. They don't. And then all of a sudden, in a random side conversation, I've never had a birthday party. It'd be easy for us to go, that's sad. It's easy for us to think, well, that explains it. It's easy for us to throw out some random thought in our heads. But God, what if all of a sudden we went, you know what? I could live differently because of Jesus. I could love those who don't love him yet. Because that's what you did for each of us in this room. And so God, I pray walls would come down. God, I pray that your spirit would rise up in all of our lives in a way that we want people to see Jesus. That we're not just about certain agendas or certain beliefs or people have to come in. They got to be a certain way before they walk in the doors. No. God, we can love people right where they're at. And it is amazing how your love in our lives in this room has transformed us. And it's sure to do the same for those that don't get it yet. So Father, help us see it. Help us live that way. Let it change the way that we influence those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.